0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll be reading together verses 12 through 30 this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Today we are going to be... Thinking particularly about the opening address of the Lord's Prayer. And this passage is going to ground us this morning as the the Apostle Paul speaks about the nature of prayer as it is offered by adopted children of God to our Heavenly Father. So, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Hear now the word of our God. So, then, brothers, we are not debtors, Uh, we are debtors, not to the flesh. that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, willingly, And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please turn in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together Lord's Day 46, which consists of question and answers 120 and 121. As I mentioned, we are now in that section of the Catechism whereby the Catechism is explaining or expositing the Lord's Prayer as a template for all of our prayers. So today we're going to be focusing our attention upon the opening address. As always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. So question 120 asks, Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Question 121 asks, Why the words, Who is in heaven? these words teach us not to think of god's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul let us pray merciful father we come to you in the name of jesus christ who dispels the night of our sin and we ask that in this moment You would be present through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would not merely hear or read or confess these truths found in your word, but that you would cause us to inwardly digest them for the sake of our nourishment and growth and grace. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit deserve all honor and glory forever and always. Amen. All right, boys and girls, well, what are the three main sections of our catechism? Isaiah? Guilt. Grief, and, gratitude. Guilt and which section are we in? Gratitude. gratitude very good. Uh, what is true faith? Marcus? And no, uh, what's the content of this faith? Noel? The Apostles' Creed. What benefit do we receive when we profess this true faith, Annabelle? Christ's righteousness, justification. Oh, where does this faith come from? Isaiah? Correct. Yes, the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the word. And what, what does the Holy Spirit use to confirm this faith? Noel. Mm-hmm. The sacraments. Good. What are the two keys of the kingdom? Marcus? Uh, the the church, the church church. Very good. The, yes, the preaching of the holy gospel and church discipline. What is a good work? What are the three elements of a good work? Three elements of a good work. Oh, Annabelle. um, Yes, exactly. True faith, according to the law of God, and unto the glory of God. What is the division of the Ten Commandments? Violet? Violet? Yes, love for God, love for neighbor. Uh, very good. Now this is a, a little bit more uh, challenging. Can we keep the 10 commandments perfectly? Do know the language of the catechism? Isaiah? No. <laughs> yes, good answer. <laughs> Ezekiel? Even the, of the only have a small portion. Of the of the Ten very good. Since we can't keep it perfectly, why are th- these commandments preached so pointedly in the church? You remember, and well, and what else does it show? That's good. Yes, Ezekiel. What's the other SOS that we thought about? Show our Savior and our show our service. Yes. Now. This is for everybody. Why should we pray? Do you remember why should we pray? What are the reasons that the catechism gives us for why we should pray? Ezekiel? Yes, the chief means of gratitude. And the second one was that prayer is effective. that it actually does something. It's powerful. And last week, we, we focused upon the how and the what of prayer. So we are to pray from the heart, heart of faith. We are to pray humbly uh, to God. And then last of all, we are to pray resting on the unshakable foundation of Christ, that our prayers are only heard because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And the content of our prayers, broadly speaking, all of Scripture, all of Scripture is fair game for the content of our prayers, but specifically we are to look to the Lord's Prayer as a template to teach us about the types of things that we are to pray. And so now the rest of the Catechism is devoted to a consideration exposition of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is made up of an address, our Father who is in heaven, and then six petitions. And so today we're going to consider the opening address, and then each subsequent week we will consider uh, one of these six petitions. And so today we're simply going to be thinking about the significance of these words, our Father who is in heaven, words that we no doubt have memorized, words that are no doubt probably second nature to us, but words that are very theologically profound and significant that we would do well to consider. So first of all, what's the significance of the our? The first person, you know, possessive pronoun there, our. It's plural. It's not possessive. It's not my Father who is in heaven. It's our Father who is in heaven, and that's very significant. This teaches us that we are not first of all praying as individuals we pray as members of the body of Christ we tend especially as american christians to think of our christian faith in terms of individualistically we are uh, we oftentimes think of our christian faith as um, you know as as being a lone ranger christian faith but throughout the new testament we see that we are yes individuals but we're individuals incorporated into a body and thus we pray united together with a body of Christ. Martin Luther has a great quote as he comments on this opening address in the Lord's Prayer. He says, Never think that you are kneeling or standing alone. Rather think that the whole of Christendom, all devout Christians, are standing there beside you and you are standing among them in common, united petition, which God cannot disdain. And so we do not pray alone. We pray with the body of Christ. And so one of the reasons why we have an element in our first service titled congregational prayer, where we pray for the needs of not only our local congregation, but we pray for the universal church, we pray for the other churches within our federation, we pray for the world, we pray for our society, our civil magistrate, is because we are called to pray as a corporate body for the needs of, of the church as a whole, not just for us individually. And this also is comforting that when you are part of the body of Christ, when you are praying individually for your own personal concern, you should take comfort that there are others praying with you for that same concern. This also is one of the reasons why we have a time before a catechism service where we can offer prayer requests. Uh, We are not um, isolated in our our prayers, but we stand uh, arm-in-arm with others who are praying with us and for us. Most comforting of all, we know that we have an elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who prays for us constantly, night and day, for things that we wouldn't even think of praying for. Well, this first-person plural pronoun, the hour, also shows us that one of the ways in which we learn to pray is by listening to the prayers of others and reciting the prayers of others. Just like when it comes to Bible intake. All Bible intake is good, But the preached word has priority over all other forms of Bible intake. One of the benefits of the preached word is that it teaches you as individuals how to read the Bible, how to read the Bible as a family. It teaches you how to interpret Scripture. Well, prayer functions in a very similar way. All prayer is good, but there's a centrality to corporate prayer. That as you listen to a pastor or elder pray, as you recite prayers from church history, including the Lord's Prayer, you are being taught about what kinds of things you should be praying for. And so recognize that when we recite prayers in our liturgy, we're not just doing this out of tradition um, to do a mindless ritual. We should be engaged in this part of our liturgy because this is meant to be pedagogical. We are learning how to pray as we recite the prayer of Thanksgiving, as we recite the Lord's Prayer, as, we, as I pray the congregational prayer. These are the sorts of things that we're called to pray for. And so that hour is very significant. We don't say my Father who is in heaven. We say our Father who is in heaven. We belong to a body. We have a body praying for us, and we learn from how others pray within the body of Christ, uh, not just in terms of the present church, but in, the his, in terms of the historic church as well. Now, Jesus here addresses God with the title Father. He says that God is our Father. We are to pray, Our Father. And this title, of course, is very significant. I'd like to spend here a few moments in Romans chapter 8, that passage that we recently read. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, Paul tells us that we are not debtors to the flesh. And what he means by this is that we're not under a covenant, we're not in a covenant of works with God. God's law does not come to us as those who have been redeemed in Christ. It does not say, do this and live and don't do this and be cursed. Uh, We are not debtors to the flesh. We're not enslaved to the flesh, enslaved to the condemnation of the law and our own sin. But rather, we are debtors to the Spirit. We're debtors to the Spirit. We owe God a debt of gratitude for his free salvation. That's why Paul continues to go on in the subsequent verses. And he says that we have not been given the spirit of slavery which causes us to fall back into fear as we approach God, but rather we have been given the capital as spirit of adoption. And this spirit of adoption causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And thus we are children and God is our Father. And that is precisely what this title of Father teaches us. It teaches us who we are. It reminds us of our identity. When we say our Father we are reminding ourselves that we are adopted children of God. That is who we are. We are not orphans, but we have an identity and we belong to God's everlasting family. Uh, This should cause us to approach God, as the catechism says, with childlike reverence and trust. There is a familiarity, a nearness, an imminence when it comes to our relationship to God as our Father. One author puts it this way, you know that God responds to your cry with the intense love and care of a parent responding to the cry of pain of his or her child. Because you are in Jesus, the true son, you can go to God with the confidence of receiving that kind of attention and love. Put another way, the Holy Spirit gives us a confident faith that turns naturally into prayer. And so this language, this title, Father, reminds us of who we are. We're children. We're children. Thus, we can approach God with this, uh, uh, an attitude of familiarity, a boldness, a reverence, a trust as a child approaches his, loving or, his or her loving father. Well, this, this title also teaches us that we are to pray in Jesus' name. It assumes the fact that we are adopted children and that we've only been adopted through the work of Christ. The only reason why we can refer to God as Father is because of the work of Christ which has has made us adopted children of God. And so this title Father uh, reminds us that we are to pray only upon that unshakable foundation of Christ our Lord. Uh, This title Father also teaches us that we are to pray out of a place of security. Security that we belong to the family of, God, family of God, no matter what the quality of our prayer life is. Prayer has the power of, the topic of prayer has the power of evoking great guilt. You hear any teaching on prayer, and I think we immediately sense how far we fall short. We don't pray enough. We don't pray with enough faith, with enough boldness, with enough reverence. And we can begin to think, well, what does that mean about me? Am I saved? Am I a Christian? Is God displeased with me? Does this mean the prayers that I do pray won't be heard, won't be affected? And we need to remember. We need to remember that we are not debtors to the flesh. We need to remember that we are not orphans. We're adopted children of God. We need to remember that prayer is in the gratitude section of our catechism and our Christian theology, which means that it's not a means of being adopted, but a response to our adoption. And so as we hear the command to pray, we hear this command coming to us stripped of its threats and curses. God hears our prayers no matter what the quality of our prayer life is like as a father hears the request of his or her son or, da- or, or, his son or daughter. Now I'd like to, to spend a few more moments thinking about the nature of this prayer. So as we pray as adopted children of God to our father, what's going on? in these moments, as we pray in the midst of a, a fallen world, as we have many sufferings that we are called to endure? What's going on when we as adopted children are praying to our Heavenly Father? Paul expands upon the nature of this kind of prayer in, in this section of Romans chapter 8. And what Paul says here is, is really profound. So in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul continues then in verses 22 through 23. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. Now notice what Paul's saying there. He's saying that we are groaning. Groaning for redemption, complete, consummate redemption as we experience the sufferings of this present age. I think we all can resonate with what Paul's saying there. We all groan. Groan for that day in which there will be no suffering. There will be no pain or or tears as we experience the consummate new creation. Paul goes on further in verse 26, and he says that in this place of groaning, this groaning because of the sufferings of this present age, the Spirit is present. So he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now, what is this weakness that Paul refers to? Well, part of this weakness is the fallenness of this world, the sufferings of this present age that he just alluded to, in verse 18, however, he's also pointing to those times in our life when we, we don't even know what to pray for. Those times where, where you just kind of throw your hands in the air and you think, I, I, don't, I don't even know what's best for myself, for my family, for my loved ones. I don't, I don't know what God's will is in this situation. I don't even know what to pray. Those times where you feel such strong emotions of sorrow, sadness, anxiety that you can't even bring yourself to utter an intelligible prayer to God. And it's in those moments that Paul says in verses 26 through 27 that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that is to say, God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And what is the will of God? Well, Paul defines the will of God in Romans eight twenty-eight. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And what is that good? Well, verse 29 defines it as conformity to Christ. So what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is saying, first of all, that we have two intercessors. We oftentimes only think of Christ as our intercessor, Christ who lives at the right hand of God to intercede for the church, Paul here is saying that we have a second intercessor, the Holy Spirit who lives within the theater of our own hearts. And that spirit also intercedes for us before God the Father. Therefore, Paul is saying that in those moments when we don't know what to pray, when we're groaning, which may be a reference to inarticulate speech, those times when when we're just befuddled with the circumstances of our life, and, and we can't even bring ourselves to utter articulate, intelligible words to God. Those times when, we, again, we feel such strong emotions that we can't even bring ourselves to, to utter a prayer before God. When, when we're in that place in our lives, the promise that Paul is giving us here is that the Spirit takes those groanings, those strong emotions, those inarticulate words, and turns those groanings into prayers that perfectly accord with the will of God. That's what Paul is saying. So in those times of life, when you, when you are feeling anxious, depressed, sorrowful, when you can't even bring yourself to pray, know that in those moments, the Spirit is taking those emotions, those in our, uh, un- unintelligible words, and turning them into prayers that perfectly accord with the will of God and are for your good. That's how prayer functions for adopted children of God who call upon God as Father. That's amazing. It's amazing to think about. As we go through our day, those those times when we don't even have space or time to pray, you know that the Spirit takes those feelings, those thoughts, and turns them into prayers, intercessions, before our Father who is in heaven. Listen to how one author summarizes uh, this point, one commentator summarizes this point. He says, The Spirit, however, makes our groaning his groaning, putting his prayer to the Father inside our prayers. In every specific request, then the Father hears us praying for what is both truly best for us and pleasing to him. This is what it means when we say, Our Father we will notice that Jesus concludes this address by telling us to say, Our Father who is in heaven. As we know from Genesis 1 and 2 that after God created all things in six days, he sat down in his eternal Sabbath rest. And he still is in that seventh day eternal Sabbath rest or the new creation. Now, this reference to God's place in heaven emphasizes God's transcendence. The title Father emphasizes God's imminence. God is near. The fact that Jesus alludes to God who is in heaven emphasizes the holiness, the otherness, the transcendence of our God. And the reason why Jesus mentions God's place in heaven, even though God, of course, is omnipresent, is to remind us of what the catechism says, that we should not think of his heavenly majesty in an earthly way. The catechism here is speaking about this this great great, uh, creature-creator distinction. When we think of God as Father, we need to remember that God is a Father in a way that's qualitatively, not just quantitatively, qualitatively different than the best Father that we know in our lives. And this goes with every attribute of God. God is loving in a way that's qualitatively different than the most loving person we know in our lives. And you can keep going down the list. We should not think of God as merely a big human who has all the best qualities that humans possess, but just in in a larger quantity. No, God is qualitatively distinct in a category and league of his own. And therefore, we are not to have an earthly thought of his heavenly majesty. So when we say our Father who is in heaven, we're confessing the creator-creature distinction, a very profound theological topic and point. And you'll notice that the Catechism goes on to instruct us that this phrase is meant to cause us to pray with confidence, that we are to expect from his almighty power everything that we need. It's not as if God has a big heart towards us. He really desires to provide for what we need, but he is just not quite able to give us everything that we need. This really is how earthly fathers function towards their children, is it not? Every earthly father in this room, uh, you desire many things for your children. There are many things that you cannot physically give your children. God's not that way. Yes, God desires to provide for his children, but he is also able to provide for his children. Boys and girls, may remember what we confess in question answer 26 of our catechism. What do we believe when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Does anyone remember? Ezekiel? Our exactly. In question answer 26, we confess basically the same thing that we are praying when we say our Father who is in heaven. God is both able and willing to provide for us. Now, this language that our catechism uses of God providing everything that we need for body and soul is very important. Oftentimes, we only think of God's bodily provisions, God's physical provisions. And we don't give enough enough attention to the provisions he makes for our souls. Oftentimes, the Lord restricts certain bodily, physical, or even circumstantial provisions because that restriction is good for our soul. When you think back in your own life, many of the things that were best for your soul have been quite difficult physically, bodily, or circumstantially. And so we need to confess together that God promised to provide not just for our bodily needs, but he also pro- uh, promises to provide for our souls, for our sanctification and sanctification. Generally speaking, the Lord uses trials in our life to sanctify our souls, to draw us closer to Him. And so, God provides for us body and soul. Well, in conclusion, I'd like to reflect for a few moments here on how this address functions as a microcosm of our entire life of gratitude. I, I mentioned two weeks ago that. The reason why the catechism pl- gives prayer this esteemed position of being the chief part of our thankfulness and gratitude is because prayer functions as a microcosm of our entire life of gratitude, meaning the posture of heart you have when you pray is the posture of heart you are to have every moment of your day, even those times when you're not praying. And so this address also functions as as a microcosm of our entire life of gratitude. So, for instance, when we say our Father who is in heaven, when we use this first-person plural pronoun, we are reminding ourselves that we belong to a body of Christ. We are reminding ourselves that we're called to commit ourselves to a local expression of his kingdom in our local communities. Uh, We are reminding ourselves that we are called to do good to everyone, but especially those of the household of faith. When we say our Father who is in heaven, we're reminding ourselves that we're adopted children of God. We're reminding ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has redeemed us, ransomed us, purchased us, justified us, and is sanctifying us. We're reminding ourselves that we are to live each and every day as those who are assured that we are clothed not in the filthy works of our own merits, but in the perfect righteousness of God's dear Son. When we say our Father who is in heaven, we're reminding ourselves that we are to revere God. We're reminding ourselves that we are to speak reverently of God and his works of providence in this life, which means that we are not to grumble and complain, but rather we are to be thankful. We are reminding ourselves that we are to worship God with reverence and awe. And so as we pray these words, our Father who is in heaven, in a meaningful way, in a way that really considers the significance of these words, we are reminding ourselves of how we are to live every moment of the day. Parents, as you teach your children the Lord's Prayer, you are also teaching them how they are to live as Christians. They are to live as members of the body of Christ. They are to live every day reminding themselves of the gospel, and they are to live reverently before their God. Let us pray.